You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity, Beyond the Wardrobe Edition. This is a special series of episodes wherein Nathan and Ben journey through the enchanted world of children's fantasy literature. What will this journey bring? You'll have to come with us to find out. Hey, everybody, welcome to Sound of Sanity. We're talking Wind in the Willows today, baby. A classic work of children's literature. I am Nathan, your humble obedient host. That's Ben, the preacher who's a teacher of frog story. No, there's no frogs in this story. Is there's there? toads. There's, there's toads. Toad. Yeah, Frog and Toad by Arnold Lobel, one of my favorite children's book series as a young child. But we're talking about slightly more sophisticated books than that today. But if you need good picture books that are a little bit more complicated than Dr. Seuss, I highly rec- recommend the works of Arnold Lobel. He also wrote Al Soup and several frog and, frog and Toad adventures. I guess they're pretty well known. I mean, you go to Barnes & Noble and you go into the children's section and you will see frog climbing up a ladder. At least in our children's book, there's like a, in our children's section at Barnes & Noble, there's a big frog. from. Were you a Frog and Toad man? I remember liking them. I can't, don't have a very clear memory. I can see the cover. In my mind. They underwent amusing adventures and learned lessons and things happened. I don't know, like Frog got the idea he's going to surprise Toad by raking all Toad's leaves. And Toad gets the idea he's going to surprise Frog by raking all Frog's leaves. And so they both walk to each other's houses. They manage to miss each other. They rake each other's leaves. They both walk home and manage to miss each other. While they are walking home, the, the wind blows and destroys both leaf piles they both get home (laughs) and are very content that they did a good deed for the other person that's a fairly typical frog and toad that's fun adventure yes they're they're quite fun and sweet and i highly recommend them and speaking of things that i highly recommend i'm just gonna go ahead and say it i highly recommend wind in the willows this might be my favorite thing that we've read so far this Mm -hmm. year i liked it a lot But let's talk about Wind in the Wills by Kenneth Graham. It's got willows. It's got some wind, I guess. It does. Does the wind actually play much of a role in this thing? Oh, the wind is always, you know, rustling the wheat yes. or something. And yeah, so yes, absolutely. He likes his pantheism or his nature worship. Yeah, or his... he does. He does. Very much. Well, let's talk about it. Kenneth Gra- uh, Graham, Ben, I think you've got some context for us. I've got a little I didn't find a ton of things, but he was a sad, tragic loner, mm. which reminds me of what's his, Robert C. O'Brien. I don't think no, that Robert C. O'Brien wasn't as tragic, but Robert C. O'Brien was a loner, the, the the writer of Mrs. Frisbee right. and the Rats of Nim, which is another very closely observed nature story about anthropomorphized animals. Not half as anthropomorphized as these animals. No, these are much more like these are people, basically, right. who are who are also animals. Well, they're very fluid. Sometimes they'll be a little bit more animalish, and then sometimes they'll just be walking around in town or That's right. Yeah, it's like it's they're on this they're in this weird borderland that he has no interest in defining exactly, but it lets him do both things. Right. Let's him talk both about the joys of civilization and the joys of nature. And this is unlike <laughs> Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, this is not a bleak grim book about how 
every day by the river could be your last because something will eat you. No. No, not at all. So um, There's a tiny bit of that feeling, but it's like 4% of that and then 96% of like an Edwardian comedy of manners. I know. I know. It's, it's great. Well, okay. Kenneth Graham himself did not have a happy life. So Kenneth Graham it was born 1859. He died in 1932. He's Scottish. And he had an unhappy childhood. His dad was a lawyer, but his dad was an alcoholic. And when he was five, his mom died of scarlet fever. His dad couldn't handle it. He was like you and your three siblings. You're going to live with your mom's mother. And so they did, and they lived in this big house in not great condition on the River Thames. And I think he loved that setting okay. and spent time by himself. And his, you can trace back his love of the natural world and his isolation the sense, the same sense you get in The Wind of the Willows, which is that, yeah, there are many connections, but on the other hand, it's quite solitary. For all that Mole ends up spending most of the book with Rat, you don't feel like Mole, I don't know, there, there is a solitary feeling to the whole book. Yes. It's like you could go a long time without seeing anyone mm-hmm. if you wanted. And, and if you, but if you did, you would see people in a certain, at a certain frequency that wasn't too often, maybe. So, so that was his growing up life. And Graham was, Graham grew up as a good student, He wanted to attend Oxford, but it cost too much. And so he worked, went to work at the Bank of England and he rose through the ranks, as Wikipedia puts it, till he retired as its secretary in 1908. And I don't know what position exactly secretary is. I didn't look it up, but it was a high position. It was an indication that you were doing, you were really good. There was a weird incident that happened during his time at the bank where this guy came in, a guy named George Robinson, who was some kind of lunatic. He came in, he asked to speak to the head manager of the bank called the governor. They're like, the governor's tired, but do you want to see the bank's secretary? Yes, I want to see the bank's secretary. Kenneth Graham comes out. This guy has a rolled up manuscript with a, tied at one end with a black ribbon and at the other with a white ribbon and asks Graham which end he chooses. Graham doesn't quite know what he's dealing with here. He ends up picking the black ribbon, at which point the man pulls out a gun and shoots at him three times, missing every time. (laughs) Then he gets wrestled to the ground, and the fire brigade turns the hose on him, and this guy's committed to the insane asylum. Mm. So that was 1903. Graham retired in 1908. It may have had some effect on his health. I don't know. In between that time, many, well, nine years earlier, 1899, Graham got married to a woman named Elspeth Thompson, and they did not have a happy marriage. They had only one son, was uh, named Alistair, and he was born blind in one eye. He had other health problems, and Graham began The Wind in the Willows as uh, bedtime stories. I think I read somewhere that he also continued them in letters, maybe when Alistair was at boarding school, I'm not sure. Wind in the Willows came out in, there we go, 1908, so Alistair... Dun, dun, dun. Alistair, I think, would have been eight, eight, seven, eight when that came out. Okay. But later on, when he was at college at age 19, Alistair killed himself by throwing himself in front of a train. So Graham had just a weird, lonely life. He always loved nature, always carried that in his heart. And the intensity with which he loved it, I think, is just obvious if you read any part of Wind in the Willows mm-hmm. and the, the feeling, the deep feeling that he had for it. It's easy. Maybe it's not easy to notice, but man, I certainly noticed this time. The Wind in the Willows, no one has a wife. Right. You don't, you don't even really 
maybe there's a reference to a mother at some point. You have some women characters, but mostly for comedic effect. Right, yeah, it's just pretty aggressively, what would someone say, it's, asexual almost? I mean, it's... it's it, well, it's, it feels like bachelors doing mm-hmm. as they please in the yeah. countryside. Gentlemen bachelors who have time and leisure and means to enjoy themselves mm-hmm. and to romanticize and soliloquize about the lives that they lead and enjoy in their homes. But no moms, no wives, not hardly even kids, although there's a few kids running around. So you feel like that's a pretty good reflection of Graham's own Mm. heart and orientation. Right. And there's not a lot else to say. I mean, he wrote some other books that I've never... Well, that's not true. I've read the story of The Reluctant Dragon, I'm almost certain. Or maybe I've just seen the Disney thing. Have you seen the yeah, Reluctant Dragon? Yeah, I've certainly seen the animated thing, and I'm... I think I've read it. I'm familiar with the story. I think I've probably read it, too. I think I've read it. Yeah. I think I remember reading and enjoying it. I haven't read any of his other... I haven't read the entire book, Dream Days, which the Reluctant Dragon is part of. I haven't read the Golden Angel or the Pagan Papers, and maybe I will. Of all the people we've read, this guy's writing is the most like, oh, he might be a genius. Yeah. At um, least he's a poet. Mm-hmm. This guy's an amazing writer. Yeah, for sure. I wonder what his influence was on Tolkien in terms of the cadences of his prose and his love for natural description. I wonder if he had an influence on Tolkien. Yeah, How could he like, not, though? It feels like it could have been high. It feels like he certainly had an influence on C.S. Lewis. Just the, this says all C.S. Lewis's favorite thing, paganism. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Yeah. The sudden unexpected appearance of Pan. Right. Not Pan. It does <laughs> it's, feel, it's actually very Lewisian when that It happens. feels very Lewisian. Very like a Narnia type of event. Well, and just the feeling of transcendence that he connects to yeah. paganism is something that Lewis loved and yeah. and used multiple times throughout his fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Well, the only other thing to say, I guess, is that Wind in the Willows was not a hit when it came out. It's not like some of the books we've reviewed. I mean, Wizard of Oz, wonderful Wizard of Oz, which was such a massive hit. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny to think of that, but... This book was not, it took a while. It took A.A. A. Milne creating a play called Mr. Toad of Toad Hall. Isn't that what it is? Out of, out, yeah, Toad of Toad Hall. Just mm-hmm. Toad of Toad Hall. Which I know of the existence of this play. I don't think I've seen it, but I'd be curious. So anyway, people came back to this one. It became very popular. It right. became a classic. But it wasn't at first. I think his short stories were more popular in his lifetime. And that's about all there is. Well, let's talk about our baggage. I barely remembered this book. I knew I had read and loved it as a young child. I knew I had seen not just the Disney version, but several adaptations of this. There's like a whole forgotten chunk of my life, almost like Pan himself erased it from my memory, his final gift. Well, that's actually not entirely facetious that I use that analogy because it does feel like there's a magical part of my life that I'm not quite in touch with that maybe I should be in touch with or lost touch with somewhere along the way that included Wind in the Willows. Early on, I remember reading this book. I remember having it read to me, I think. I remember the Disney movie. I remember a claymation movie, I think maybe 80s BBC-ish type thing. I feel like I've seen multiple adaptations. Like I feel like there was a whole, there was a time when all of this was in my imaginative vocabulary and very present in my life, but I barely could have told you what it was about. I knew it was about Toad and I knew it was called Wind in the Willows and I had the idea that it was an idyllic early British kind of a thing, but 
I remembered very little about it. But as I read it, I had that joyous sense of rediscovery. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Huh. Oh, mole and rat. And I remember this. Uh, I didn't remember anything about some of the more esoteric. In fact, I wonder if that stuff was just skipped. I wonder if the Piper and the Gates of Dawn made it into my mom's rendition of this when she read it to us <laughs> or, or not. But yeah, it was fun to go back to. And now that I have it again, I don't want to let it go. I think it's in some ways my favorite thing that we've done in this series so far. It's a wonderful book, but uh, we'll get more into our actual take here in a second. What is your wind in the willows baggage? Mm. I think I saw Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and then I think I didn't read this book as a kid, or I can't remember if I did. I think it just wasn't quite, I, I was all about adventure. It was all about the Redwell kind of thing, and this is not that. And I mean, it does have a little bit of daring do, but it's not focused on daring do. I imagine that's why I didn't keep reading it after I lost touch yeah. with it. I imagine that's why I lost touch with it. Right. It's a very different kind of book. Yeah. And maybe if I'd been a kid in some other era, I might have glommed onto it. But I've, I enjoy it. I enjoyed it more as an adult. Mm-hmm. It's a, I, I did read it at some point. Maybe I was a teen. Maybe I was even in my twenties or thirties, as possible. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess twenties, actually. And I was nonplussed. I think it's like okay. Well, it's charming and it's certainly well written, but it doesn't do much for me. And then you've got this weird pan stuff in the middle. And okay, all right, I guess it's a thing. Yeah. So goodbye. Yeah, I could, I could understand that. I could see hitting it that way. Yeah. But well, let's talk about how we hit it this time. Uh, what do you think about Wind of the Willows? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. One, it's great. Agreed. Certain chapters, at least, were my favorite thing that we've read in this series, Beyond the Wardrobe, so far. I was really taken by... I was able to get into the spirit of the thing Mm -hmm. this time, at least for the most part. Yeah, I'm hit and miss on this era's, like, Edwardian whimsy. I I had a spat of loving Jeeves and Worcester books back in the day. I haven't gone back to them, and I don't think that I'd want to. I still admire Woodhouse for his prose and stuff, but, Mm -hmm. or uh, like... Some of the stuff that has written around this time, J.M. Barry, there's certain things where I'm just like, eh, it's a little overwrought or a little in love with itself or a little mm-hmm. something. And Wind of the Wills, Willows constantly threatens to be all those things. That's right. But I like how down to earth it is and how dryly it presents itself. It's not striving for effect. It, it, it can be over the top with some of the nature stuff. Mm-hmm. But... Mostly you have these very prosaic <laughs> English stereotype characters, well-drawn with very fun human fo- foibles. I mean, our foursome mole, rat, badger, and toad are all great in their own individual ways and all very well-drawn and more three-dimensional than you expect each one of them. Yeah. So I found the characters delightful and I found the world delightful. And mm-hmm. yeah, but yeah. go on. I think I... I jumped in there. No, that's all right. I I also, I found the world really delightful. I loved the first half of the book where Rat is helping Mole acclimate to the broader world. Mm-hmm. You know, deal with, wait, there's not just my hole in the ground, there's the river. And then off somewhere there, there's the wild wood. I'll go into the wild wood. Oh no, that was a terrible idea. I'm terrified, you know. So Mole is just getting introduced and introduced to all these things and having a great time mm-hmm. doing it. 
And then I think probably the most charming thing for me, the thing that made me happiest was Rat and Mole's friendship. Mm-hmm. Rat yeah. is a really great friend. Yeah. Like it made me think, oh, I'm not really, I don't know that I'm as good a friend to anyone as Rat is mm-hmm. to Mole. He's certainly a more patient sort of person, Rat, than yeah. I am. And, uh, but he's also just generous. He's just generous. And there is a nice, there is a nice reminder in there of what friendship can be or ought to be. Yeah. There's just a generosity of spirit that the animals have for each other, at least our foursome. Mm-hmm. That's really sweet. And for all that it may have come from, <laughs> for, for all the sadness of marking, wait a minute, where are the female characters? And then learning a little bit about Graham's life and then processing it that way, there's still a lot he captures about good friendships. And so just the gentle adventure, comedy, the immersive description, the completely immersive description about home and then exploring far from mm-hmm. home and then being excited by a new place like the Wildwood and then realizing, wait a minute, now I'm terrified. I don't know how to deal with this. It is like, in some ways, it is like being a kid again. Yeah. And it's it gives you some of the, because I was struggling to put my finger on it. So this book is a weird mixture because it's these adult males, basically, like young bachelors, right. like I said. But then Mole is like a kid. He's like a little kid. It's, it's, it's as though the, the way that he experiences the world is the way that you or I as a boy experience things. Mm-hmm. Like suddenly our horizons were broadened and we were amazed at the forest. And then we got lost from our dad and mom who, who we were hiking with. And then we were like alone in the forest for five minutes and we were terrified. We felt the vastness and craziness of the wilderness or right. something, as a little kid would. And then your mom and dad find you and you're like, oh, you're okay. But you never forget those five minutes of being lost in the woods mm. as you felt you were. And, and, and so, it, yeah, every experience gets magnified. And it's like he's, it's like he's, I don't have a better word, unfortunately. It's like he's milking it. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's milking these childhood moments. And they're the main things that the plot turns on in some sense. It reminded me a lot of The Hobbit in that sense. Obviously, yeah. The Hobbit is much more plot-based mm-hmm, and sort of mm-hmm. high episodes of high adventure. Right. And a journey that you can track. Right. That's singular. But the alternating sort of danger that's just dangerous enough without being too dangerous, like like the way a kid perceives danger, mm-hmm. like, oh, that was really scary, but now it's over. The coziness right. the of coziness, home yeah. and hearth and friendship and the sense of we're just going to sit on the porch and smoke our pipes together while the autumnal wind blows through the uh-huh. willows. And then there's another thing that's very Tolkien. Tolkienian, which is the the yeah, like you were saying, the male bonding aspect and the kind of natural hierarchies that develop through generosity of spirit and friendship on the one mm-hmm. hand, and then through age and wisdom and experience versus naivete and immaturity on the other hand. So I think Gandalf lovers will recognize a little bit of his DNA in Badger, the kind of the stolid older mm-hmm. gentleman who morally approves or disapproves of everyone and you can he's a little bit grouchy and you can never quite predict mm-hmm. what he's going to approve of or not approve of but you know he's the moral arbiter mm-hmm. of things and then yeah the complete generosity bordering on unwise sometimes of rat mm-hmm. but mostly very commendable mm-hmm. and yeah. then of course as kids everybody loves toad that was probably my least thing i was least interested in this particular <laughs> the the more sort of slapstick <laughs> adventures of Mr. Toad. Uh, not that I, I don't want to sneer. I, I understand why. I understand why Disney would 
zero in on that and why uh-huh. why kids zero in on that, why mm-hmm. people think of the these books from the very beginning as the Mr. Toad stories. Right. But they're this book, I should say, not these books. Right. But, you know, even you can see it in Milne's adaptation, Toad of Toad Hall, like everybody. The, when you read the book, it, what's striking about it is that it's about four creatures, not just about Toad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's not, I wouldn't even say he's the protagonist, really. But any adaptation always makes it into the Toad story because he's got the most kind of fun yeah, and the most splashy arc in terms ha. of... Pun intended. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but it's just as good as a mole, mole protagonist story. Uh-huh. In fact, I think it's more successful when viewed that way. It's, well, I think structurally it's weird because it starts as a mole protagonist story. Yeah. You have the, a bit of an interlude with Rat. Yeah. And then you have It's All Toad. Yeah. The rest of the time. With everyone still around. Right. But that's its structure. I was, I found myself, I don't know if you listened to it yourself or just read it. I listened to it. I listened to it, yeah. My reader was really funny. So when, the way that he did Toad especially was perfect. Did you do the one that Terry Jones read? No. I I could not get a hold of that one. It was checked out already. Probably by some jerk that I, no. No, I'm just kidding. So... I think that was on what Libby. I'm just trying to think what jerks you know. <laughs> I don't. It's it's a mystery. Why do you spend time with these people? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good question. I think that one had limited copies. It was on Libby. Mm. So I found one on Hoopla, read by another British gentleman, and boy, he yeah, he did a great job. So mm-hmm. Toad, I was cracking up most of the time, or a lot of the time, because I thought Toad was hilarious. So I I had a great time with Toad. Yeah, Terry Jones did a nice job too. I mean, he did. I'm sure he did. He did what you'd expect. Badger was very this way, you know. Yes, 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 yes. And then Toad was all you very, ex- you know, that. Yes, yes, um, yeah, absolutely. And then Moe was a little bit more this. And it sounds like our authors did the same thing. But who's the reader on this one? This is surely it's going to be funny if this was actually Terry Jones. But I no way. Yeah, Andrew Wincott. Hmm. It didn't sound like Terry Jones. So no, I you just it was really funny. Toad made me crack. Up, especially his refusal to reform at first when Badger puts him in a room and makes yes. him cry, and then he brings him out and he says, "No, absolutely not." <laughs> yeah, to be clear, the Toad stuff is great, and Kenneth Graham's moral sense and just the fun of the moral sense of a different era and a different place and a different like like <laughs> the Edwardian sort of virtue of good manners, good breeding, uh-huh. noblesse oblige. <laughs> those things are all in there in a way that's very foreign to me and to I think most right. Americans of the 21st century and so the idea that the three friends are just going to lock out in his house until he reforms because he owes it to them he owes it to society he owes it to his village he owes it to the good name of Toad it, there's there's this whole <laughs> Edwardian sense of morality that I dare say we could stand to learn a little something from even if Kenneth Graham is a weird guy and something of a pantheist. It's uh, this book. It's nice to read a book from a different era and it'll have sins that aren't our sins and virtues that aren't our virtues. And this book definitely has virtues that aren't our virtues. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's pretty nice. But so when I say the toad stuff was the least successful for me, I just mean. It was I, overshadowed. I knew it was there and I uh-huh. was waiting for it. And I thought the whole book was going to be it. And so I was pleasantly surprised to realize and remember there's a lot more going on. Oh, than, yeah. Than, there's a lot more. Than Toad. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I would say my favorite is the mole and rat stuff. Yeah. The mole and rat stuff for sure. And and there's just, 
it's one of those books where you don't get bored when it has the descriptions of the wind rustling through the willows. Uh You do feel cozy when you're in Badger's house, when they're snowed in, in the wild woods and stuff like that. I mean, it has that snuggly hidden away from the world inside a grand old house somewhere feeling that uh, I always loved as a kid and I love now. And so a lot of that stuff's just great. I mean, it put me in touch with something that I always loved about Tolkien and others, but Tolkien's maybe the prime example that most people will know, which is that it wasn't particularly plot driven. You watch a Peter Jackson movie and you're like, oh yeah, of course, Tolkien's full of plot and incident, but Uh actually Tolkien's about leisurely journeys and Mm -hmm. resting and what they ate and what they saw. Especially the first few chapters of Lord of the Rings, you're like, what's happening? Like this, we're just hanging out with friends for chapter after chapter here. Right. Page after page. That's actually some of my favorites. Uh, I actually, even as a kid, I began to lose interest in Lord of the Rings in Return of the King when everything was just moving so fast that you you never really felt like you could just like stop and like you actually wanted to smell the flowers. Not that there were that many growing in Mordor, Mm -hmm. but it's like... the Gondor battle goes so fast. There, there's everything becomes so sort of high and arcane mm-hmm. and it's moving so quickly. And so it's got its own kind of power, but just Frodo under the stars with his friends, you know, looking up at the weird kind of eldritch constellations of middle earth and wondering mm-hmm. about them or, or some of the creepy early stuff like the Barrow whites and, or even I dare say Tom Bombadil, although he's never been my favorite. Mm-hmm. So that stuff's, Great. And it has its own kind of pull and its own kind of mystic power. And you can see a lot of, I keep using this phrase, but you can see a lot of the DNA of that in a Kenneth Graham. Like, actually, when you like the characters, when you're invested in the relationships, when you just enjoy the humor and the way that the, and when you like spending time with the author, when you like his voice, you want a book to slow down sometimes. You don't just want everything to be built around narrative momentum. Right. You want to know what they ate. You want to know what they smoked. You want to know how the river was when they went on it and not every book has to be built around a plot. And so I really enjoyed that, that aspect of this book to the point where when the plot proper began to kick in with Toad being sentenced sentenced to 20 years years in jail. (laughs) I was less patient with that than I was the other stuff, but obviously that was great. And the portrait of Toad and his escape and all that was a lot of fun. Oh man. Although I did feel a little bit of pedanticness over what's the relationship between animals and humans in this world? And yeah, yeah, I felt, I felt that too. It was hard to define. If Toad's just a human, basically, then shouldn't the law still come after him? After like, why, I know, why I is know. he just like off scot-free now? But Kenneth Graham doesn't care and we're not supposed to care either. I mean, there's even things like, I think generations have been bugged by this. Toad combs his hair and it's like, well, what are you actually supposed to Imagine, I can imagine the way that Disney does that because I remember Disney doing that. But it's like what <laughs> Kenneth Graham sometimes does, as we said, want them to just be animals. And then in other places, he wants them to be human and everything but name. <laughs> what else is there to say about this book? Oh, let's talk about the, well, let's talk about romanticism and paganism, maybe in that order. So talk about romanticism, meaning the idea of finding something transcendent in the natural world, finding something sublime mm-hmm. there and being united with it, letting it pulse through you. This book, I, I think 
my unease when I first started listening to the book was tied to that. Like, I just, I don't know that I will go with you here, Kenneth Graham, into these reveries and transports about mm. nature and its beauty and how it makes you feel and how it calls you. And I still feel some unease. Like, this book is about, this book is about spell being put under a spell, both by, it's like all its characters are, okay, I'm finding this hard to talk about. So it's about the joys of home mm-hmm. in being around your hearth, having friends, having supper. There's, a, there's an intense scene in the middle of the book where Mole's home, old home that he forsook calls to him and he just has to go there and he like sobs and sobs and sobs. And it's like, maybe I don't value my home enough, but there's something weird about this. This is, maybe it's just that it is a child crying for his home. It's not a man or a woman crying for their home. And maybe I'm unfair, and maybe that just shows that I'm not entirely whole as a man, that I feel that way. But I just felt like, well, I guess so. But I don't, I'm not going to try to cultivate Mole's feeling about his home in myself or in my kids. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something, I think it is maybe the virtue and the vice of a different time in a different place. Mm-hmm. But I think there is something virtuous about it. You can see it in Tolkien, in The Shire, in his love of The Shire, in mm-hmm. his yeah, disgust yep. at the scouring of the Shire, in, in Bilbo getting back to Bag End and having to reclaim his possessions, like the investment that Tolkien has and that his protagonist has in this place that's home is, is not one that I really share with the character. I don't, I'm always eager to get out of the Shire and get to the good stuff. And so is Peter Jackson. And Peter Jackson in those movies sentimentalizes the Shire in a way that shows. He has no understanding of it. He's just like, ah, it's cute. And everybody's a comic relief character oh, wearing yeah. a silly wig yeah. while Howard Shore goes overdrive on the music to tell you how mm-hmm. bucolic everything is. And it kind of works. I don't want to sneer too much at it. But it, we don't have any conception of just the sort of robust love and loyalty that some of, I, that these people have I, I think you're, you, to their I, homes. I, sorry for interrupting. Yes, I think you're right. You see it also in Chesterton. Yes, absolutely. Uh, with that book, what The Napoleon of Notting Hill. Yeah. If you, dear listener, have read that book a little more obscure than most, you'd have been more likely to read The Man Who Was Sunday, I bet. Mm-hmm. But The Napoleon of Notting Hill, if memory serves, is a, is about defending, loving your own neighborhood and being very particular about it. And there is, yeah, definitely, I remember as a kid, I feeling t- the way that Tolkien felt about the Shire. I remember that Tolkien passed that feeling on to me more easily than Kenneth Graham did, I think, probably... I think that would be true. I think Kid Ben would have was just more tapped into what Tolkien was doing, partly because you had a quest story yeah. built in around it. And so maybe maybe it's not true that I can't resonate with some of what Graham does. I think but there's something about it that made me uncomfortable. And I really think that maybe just a sign there's something wrong with me, like I don't value I, I think that I, I don't know though. I think with me, like I have no I, I think it's a flaw in me. I think I cannot enter into Tolkien's love of the Shire in the way, like the, we could talk in a minute with what's wrong with Kenneth Graham and there are things and there may even be something wrong with Tolkien, but I have very little attachment to things and to places and almost a, in my case, a borderline cynicism about them. Like I, I want to be above it all. I don't want to care about, I mean, it's very easy for me to throw out a material possession. Whereas my wife clings on to, stuff and invest stuff with meaning and memory 
and has loyalty. Like, I can't throw that away. You know, X, Y, or Z gave that to me and it has this memory. I just, my brain doesn't operate that way. My heart doesn't operate that way. And I think some of that's probably pride. Some of that is brokenness from not enjoying my home at a young and early age in the way that I should have. I think there's a lot that goes into that. That Some of it might just also be temperament. Like I'm just not, I think for both of us, we actually love fantasy and story. Like I think you and I, in a sense, both live in our heads a little bit more than some people. And so it's like our, we can carry our home with us in a, in a way that another person invests the external world with their homely qualities. Well, yeah, you know, Nathan, as we've been talking, I, I'm now, this, this conversation is sparking some thoughts in me. And I'm thinking I didn't, I didn't finish processing this discomfort before we talked. But I'm realizing, <laughs> I just wasn't thinking of this, but I'm realizing the way that I, since I was a kid, have obsessed over home, mm-hmm. especially over specific people and places they didn't even have to be places where I lived, but like I have a lot of family and history in Mississippi and south of Jackson in the neighborhood where my grandparents lived and where I had lots of cousins. Right. Has been a big part of my memories, even of dreams in some sense. And I think as a kid, I had a very strong feeling of attachment to the history that place and those times with family members represented to me. It's like they, my identity felt bound up with that in large part. And then I can think of a number of places I've lived from Louisiana to Washington to Tennessee where I felt some of that, just that. And I can remember as a kid chewing on memories of people and places that had become a part of me in a way that was obsessive, sentimental, probably some degree of health, some degree of unhealth. It's hard for me to tell you what's what. But I said I couldn't identify with moles longing for home. And I'm thinking, actually, no, that's not true. You've done that a million times, maybe not so much as a married man. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there are still places and people that I have have a strong feeling of attachment towards in some sense Yeah, that are a part of my past. Life has moved on. I live here. I'm rooted here, and I want to be rooted here. But anyway, I just think maybe I didn't even, for some reason, I didn't connect what Graham was doing with what I myself have done. I, I think it's helpful to actually have you say all that because I think we all have complex relationships with this sort of thing. Like as you talk, I'm thinking, actually, there's places I have gone back to or could go back to where I would have a very mole-like experience where I'm like, I forgot all about this. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about this, but actually it does have great meaning for me, but it's just not a meeting that I've let myself feel or have conjured up for a long time. But sometimes That's it'll, right. it'll hit me. I, I also think it's true that for me, as I've been married as I've been a homeowner, as I've put down more mm-hmm. real roots, I have more of a feeling of that sort of thing now in some ways mm-hmm. than I ever did before. And maybe it's just like I'm paying a mortgage. So, of course, I'm going to have to invest some kind of sentimental meaning well, to you, my house. And your you children know. walk the hallways of your house yeah, now. exactly. And your wife. Is, exactly. That's, that's very different. I think, I think that's true, too. And I'm going to bet that I have more feeling there than I even realize Speaking of my home, just like you do with yours. What I don't have that Chesterton, Tolkien, and Graham all seem to have, and that I I understand, I can see the virtue in, sort of, but I just don't feel it, is this kind of, it might suck, but it's mine, and therefore, I love it, sort of feeling. Like, I don't have that. Like, to me, of course, I'd rather be in Rat's house than 
Mole's Hole because Rat's House is cool and Mole's Hole sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And it doesn't matter if I'm Mole and I own Mole's. Like there's that kind of like I'd rather have my crummy walking stick to take something that they would have had than a cool walking stick. And that's a kind of sentimental attachment that I do not relate to and have very little of, I think of like I am in some sense, I'm a pragmatist in a way that none of these men are. And in this way that early 20th century British people don't seem to have been like when Chesterton's like, I like my walking stick because I can do 10 things with it. Whereas now y'all have 10 different inventions that have replaced it. Is that really progress? I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's progress, Chesterton. Like, it's nice that we have air conditioning. And like, I'm just, there's something in all this that I don't relate to and maybe even resent a little, a little bit. Like, just the sort of Luddite feeling of it all. Or uh, that's not quite well, the right word, but I, I think that's if not you, fair. But. I don't know. I bet that you do have some of the same attachment. It's just like, if you, to go back to the Mole's Hole example, if you think of the things that make your house feel like home and that you and your wife have, put together you know you you she got this picture and you hung it up or right. even small things like that there's probably ways in which you're like yeah that's great and if we gave all of it up for a bigger house that may that i was like objectively this is a nicer house or something i would i'd probably feel some like ah i miss the coziness of what we built and lived in yeah and i think I, i'm i'm actually less that way i think okay i think, I think you okay. might even be more i i think at a certain point i'd be like okay let's talk numbers here okay (laughs) if you can make this other house cool enough Uh big enough expensive enough Uh useful enough whatever then at a certain point that's going to outweigh whatever little sentiment i'll be happy to forget about (laughs) right everything we ever did goodbye picture i hung with my own hands okay yeah okay all right hello (laughs) gold-plated faucets (laughs) that's right that's funny Um, i mean it's not like I would want to abandon all that for just one step up, but for 10 steps up, sure. <laughs> you know, let's. All right. Yeah, I get it. So that, uh, yeah. What would you even, what would you even categorize that as? The romance of home, the bucolic feeling, the. I'm not really yearning. sure how to talk about it without being totally abstract. Yeah. I just don't, I don't know how. Well, this book also has the romanticism, classic romanticism, romanticism of nature, which I think is actually pretty well evoked. And I don't feel particularly threatened by like I, I could see the wrong sort of person reading this book and taking the wrong lessons away from it. There is a strain of something that's bad in here, a strain of something that's borderline pantheistic, as I've said a couple of times. But I mostly like it. I mean, it does get into straight paganism, which people need to realize, historically speaking, Graham was writing in a time when there was a strain of neo-paganism moving through the world. Lewis is downstream of that, and Lewis loves that stuff. And I'm not saying you can't read Lewis and love Lewis. I'm just saying he loves that stuff. I mean, you have the rise of all these weird religions, neo-pagan type religions in the early 20th century. I'm thinking of the horror writers of the time algernon blackwood wrote the willows which is probably the best scary story ever written it's all about a guy that finds himself he's alone in an abandoned place somewhere down the danube um in just on just an island surrounded by willows and he has some kind of a creepy transcendent experience with the gods of the willows and it's the dark side of the same thing that graham is into 
if people have heard of Arthur Macon, his novel, The Great God Pan, he was a neo-pagan that wrote a lot of this kind of stuff. And there's all kinds of examples we could talk about. I mean, a strain of this, I'd say, runs through J.M. Barry, runs through a lot of the children's authors of the time, might even be like a 1% of it in the Oz books. But it is interesting. You have to place Graham there and realize that was popular, realize that he was given to it. And then you can understand the weirdest chapter in this book, which is Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is where our characters just have an encounter, spoilers, with Pan, the nature god. Um, and it's presented very transcendently and beautifully and mm-hmm. romantically. And it gets at that that ache towards the divine, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis's weight of glory. It gets at that ache towards the divine that we all have. And it's pretty, it's pretty just outright pagan. There's no other, mm-hmm. there's no other word for it. And boy, is that a weird chapter. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It is weird. I didn't like it. I couldn't, I don't know. I wasn't able to enjoy because it was worship and it was worshiping the creator, uh, sorry, the creation instead of the creator. Yeah. Pan is just the summation of what nature is in Graham's estimation, mm-hmm. you know. I thought it was well done. What he set out to do, he did very well. He I, did. I, I almost want to say, if you're reading it with little kids, I might just skip it. But if you're an adult who wants to take a little bit of poison in order to get the inoculation, it's it might be worth reading. You can understand maybe the way that people, in a more naked kind of a way than many people even today, you can understand the worship of nature. He presents it beautifully. And yeah. maybe one of the most beautiful passages like that that I've read in a novel. And I say that t- to its shame, not to its praise. But, you know, like if you want to just see somebody do nature worship well, um, uh-huh. this is about the pinnacle outside of some of the great horror guys and what's good about them. What's bad about them is that they introduce an element of horror. What's good about them is they introduce an element of horror. But it is fascinating. It is fascinating in the middle of this book, it's somewhat out of character with what comes before and after, but also not really. That's right. You're going to get neo-paganism in Edith Nesbitt. It's, I think I mentioned her book. Oh, no, I just lost the title. Is it The Invisible Castle? I oh. believe that was the title you okay. bandaged about last time. Well, that is very explicitly like, boy, do we miss the old Greek gods. And boy... Do I have a sense of longing for them? And I want to give you, the child reader, a sense of longing for them. And she's good at that, I think. PSA, be careful for your kids. Like, Mm. even reading Caldecott's Book of Myths or whatever can give them a sense of longing for the Greek gods and goddesses in a very weird way because we're made to worship. And at certain times in your life, especially, certain things can strike you. Certain things can strike young kids, their own longings, and fit there. And it will not be a longing for God. It'll be a longing for <laughs> Apollos or yep. Pan or something. I, and these stories are really can really successfully move your kids' emotions that way. So be careful. You know who else is like that and comes from the same era, and I should have mentioned him already. George MacDonald mm. is it, it, maybe a couple decades before these guys was when he was at his prime. He was writing more in the – he died in uh, 1905. I just looked it up, so he – didn't he lived into the edwardian era but probably wrote most of his stuff in the late 19th century as opposed to the early 20th but he's got this same kind of semi-christianized pagan like uh, i'm a christian and i come from a christian society but the thing that i think is really cool is (laughs) the fairies and not like the fairies from some fairy tale but like 
the fairies, <laughs> the embodiments of uh-huh. the old demons and sprites and spirits that still inform our world today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you see that strain of stuff all through the late Victorian era and into the Edwardian and then into the early 20th century. And, of course, it's still with us today in various <laughs> ways. But I think it had a flowering at that time that it actually didn't have again until maybe the 19, late 1960s and then again now, huh. really, with neo-paganism. Huh. and the death of Christianity in the West. But it's interesting stuff. I mean, what the Gospel Coalition would do with the chapter Piper at the Gates of Dawn is they'd say, yes, he successfully evokes longing. And uh, so we can just say, without knowing it, he's evoking our longing for Jesus. Um, nope. Nope. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I have, let's say, 25% sympathy for that argument. I have 75% disdain for that argument. I have 25% in that sympathy for that argument in that when you read, for example, in Proverbs, the description of wisdom as a type of Christ and being there and wisdom being there for the creation of the world, you do have language that does actually evoke that sort of majesty, that sort of awe, that sort of transcendence. If you're reading it in the right frame of mind, you can feel that sort of longing. So it's not that those feelings aren't sometimes properly applied to Jesus or properly applied to God. It's not that God didn't build us that to have a kind of longing that we might almost label as mystic, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean we approach it in a mystical way. And that doesn't mean that we use actual Gnostic writings or pagan writings in order to trigger those feelings. That would be like looking at pornography so that you can then go bed, go to bed with your wife. Like I'm so deadened. I'm so erotically deadened that the only way I can go to bed with my wife is by looking at pornography first. Well, that's not a healthy place to be in your marriage. And if the only way that you can feel any feelings of worship or veneration for your actual creator is by approaching him through derivations and permutations and uh, perversions, approaching him through myths and idols, then uh, that ain't going to get you anywhere. So mm-hmm. F minus for the Gospel Coalition and their ilk as usual. <laughs> Anything else to say about the wind in the willows? Um, let's see. No, I don't think so. We could talk more about the animal-human divide. Let's talk about or it. Or lack of it. Well, what else is there to say? It's not very clearly drawn. It's, I don't know that it hurts the book. It does make, it does, it did make me, like you asked, certain questions during the Mr. Toad scene, especially like, what is the size of Mr. Toad relative to the human right. beings? Because it seems like he's actually on a parody, size-wise. He's the size of a human woman. Mm-hmm. A washerwoman, as we learn. Right. And are all the other animals that size? So you start asking these questions that actually throw you out, pull you out of the story. Yeah, I wanted to force myself not to because I didn't want to be And I was trying not to. But yes, I felt the sort of same thing. Like, I know you're not supposed to ask. I know it's all supposed to just sort of be uh, washed together and who cares. And in some vaguely metaphorical, vaguely not. But a little bit of clarity would have helped me, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even something like Nam, I'm enough of a person that's like that. I, I don't think of myself as someone who's rigorous about like, well, how did Bruce Wayne get back to Gotham without any money and Dark Knight? Right? You know, uh-huh. those kinds of things. It's like, who cares? But on the other hand, it's like, I don't know. There is part of me always that's like, well, is Mrs. Frisbee, can, she's wearing clothes or not? Or where? Like, what are uh-huh. the rules here? I want to know the rules. Not because I'm obsessed with the rules but just because tell me the rules and then i can forget about them and then mm-hmm. enjoy the story whereas if i keep coming across them 
and being bothered by them, then I can't enjoy the story. So <laughs> I don't know. F minus when in the willows sucks. There you go. I'm trying to think of what else. I like the final confrontation, very Odyssean confrontation uh-huh. with the stoats. And the weasels. And the weasels. And the ferrets. And the ferret. A lot of fun. And again, just feels wildly like from a different era. Just, uh-huh. I mean, even just the fact that Rat is like, oh, my friend might have gone to a dangerous place. And so he grabs a brace of pistols and, and a cudgel. And a cudgel. And it's like, who? are these people what era do they come from what what world are we living in and then you remember your gk chest and then you're like well i think he's writing with that perspective like you go for a walk you take your pistol and your walking stick you're prepared to defend yourself and i don't know it's a weird world and there's also a lot of stuff about the automobile as a symbol of societal decay and newfangled something that a dumb modern person that I mean, I don't think the book's quite, I'm exaggerating. I don't think Kenneth Graham necessarily is saying, you know, automobile equals bad, you know, but there is this kind of sense of encroaching modernity in the book. And it is, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, he's writing in 1911 when the automobile was encroaching modernity as opposed to just a fact of modernity. Mm -hmm. Well, how many willows out of 14 do you give to the wind in the willows? Nah, 13, I guess. Yeah, 13 Willows. Unlucky. There you go. Unlucky book. Do not read this book. No, I would say this is in many ways the best book that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Certainly the most fun I would think to read aloud with when your kids are the right age yeah, for it. For sure. Um, I'd imagine they'd have to be six, seven, eight, you know, not not real little, but I suppose they wouldn't you wouldn't want to read any of the books we've mentioned so far to people who were like my two year old daughter. Nope. Wouldn't get a lot out of them. Yeah. If you like Frog and Toad. But uh, yeah, this is a 13. And if you have $13 you want to give us, go to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. Sign up today. I guess that's it. Until next time. Ben's shaking his head. He's got nothing. All right. He's getting on his computer. He's looking. He's trying to think of a quote. The wind in the willows and the silver spoon. The little boy laughs at the man in the moon. When you're coming home, I don't know when we can get together then. Until next time. Here today, up and off to somewhere else tomorrow.